This is Archive Atlanta, episode 226, Ghost Pools. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week I am sharing another interview, two in a row, uh, and I'm doing that mostly because... By the time you listen to this episode, I will be on two-week vacation, um, so I'm finally going to take my little summer podcast break, which I'll put out a little notice um, in that week's episode so everybody remembers, but I finally got to speak with Hannah Palmer. I have been a fan of hers from the second I bought Flight Path when I was researching the airport, and I talk about this in the interview, um, but she's done so many things, and when I finally got to meet her in person a couple months ago, I said, what do you want to talk about? Anything. And she said, ghost pools. So we talked a lot about public swimming places, the earliest histories of those, spring-fed pools, um, when we switched to what we think today is a swimming pool, how these public spaces were used and thought about, how they became battlegrounds for the civil rights movement, and then specifically why East Point doesn't have any pools, and then what led her on this project. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Um, like I said earlier, I'm fangirling because from your very first project, so I think it was researching the airport episode and I, of course, bought your book, Flight Path. And so then I thought to myself, oh, I should, I should talk to her about this. And then it was finding the Flint project and then it was the Creek League. And then when I finally saw you at the Park Pride conference, you know, I'm like, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> You're like ghost pools, which is great because it's 90 something degrees out right now. Um, and we're talking about summer, but um, for those people that somehow don't know who you are and what you do, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Hannah Palmer. I'm a writer. I live in East Point, Georgia, and I'm a native of Clayton County or Atlanta's South Side. And you just rattled off quite a all the stuff I, you did. <laughs> my resume. My for the last six or seven years, I've I've been a freelance writer, and I've been able to work on different kinds of um, urban conservation projects that have led me to think and look at water a lot. And, you know, I've been able to publish some of those thoughts in different magazines like Atlanta Magazine or journals like Southern Cultures. And I'm working on a new book that will come out next year from LSU Press about trying to find water in the urban south. But the the book you mentioned, Flight Path. Yes, was that the first book you wrote? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was like my master's thesis when I got my MFA in creative writing. And I had started creative writing, writing poetry, but ultimately started writing more narrative and stories about home. Um, and my home is, you know, the edge of the world's busiest airport, which turns out is a very strange place to grow up. <laughs> Much of the, you know, landscape where I grew up has been uh, transformed or completely erased by the growth of the airport and all the adjacent industrial development around the airport. So that turned into like really fertile ground for the book. And since then, that has just kind of given me a lot of confidence to chase down other things that I find curious in the world. Was there water? Like, because I'm so curious, your connection with water and how you kind of went down that path. Like, did that even start when you were writing Flight Path? Because of the stuff that's... Not really. I, you know, I knew just from researching the fifth runway project at Hartsfield-Jackson, I knew that parts of Sullivan Creek were piped under the fifth runway. And I read that parts of the Flint River were somewhere in some network of pipes yeah. underneath the airport. And all of that was a was a mystery to me. And so it, it was awesome that when 
uh, Flight Path was, was published in 2017 that I was approached by Ryan Gravel with Six Pitch and the Conservation Fund and American Rivers and the ARC. They were all trying to, um, you know, create a new vision for the Flint River headwaters. Oh. And I knew just a little bit about the Flint River headwaters, but mostly I knew about the South Side. I knew about airport area communities and how we've sort of like been disconnected and displaced by the growth of the airport, which to me sounded a lot like this river. Oh, so, interesting. So that, so the Flint felt more personal to you. Like, oh yeah. If, to me, it feels almost like a symbol of resilience of like South side communities, like kind of still hanging in there. And, um, it's inspiring to me that this, this river is like still so full yeah. of life. I mean, it's, it's a wild story that there's a river under the airport and it's wilder still when you see that it's, uh, that it's it survived all that we've thrown at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's you know I would say especially with water, right? It's like nature doesn't care what what, especially with water, it's gonna find a way. Yeah. It's gonna do what it wants to do, and, right. and I think all we do as humans is try to change that and stop that. And I see what you're saying, where it's just like oh, the airport's not gonna stop me. Exactly. I think my colleague Chris Lemons told me Mother Nature is undefeated. Yes. And, <laughs> and he said that when we were at a green infrastructure project uh, a park opening on the west side of Atlanta you know so many of the the new parks on Atlanta's west side are designed to kind of capture and yeah manage stormwater that's been flooding English Avenue and Vine City for a generation and I think about that all the time that like the the, so the water's gonna go funny. it's gonna remember its path it's gonna go yeah. that way so looking at rivers is not just looking at the history in the past it's actually looking at the future because especially in an era of climate change when like storms are getting yeah you know, bigger oh, and, and streets flood I mean Atlanta has issues with flooding and we see that every time it's a major rain and it ends up you know all over the internet and that's like wow so then the Creek League where did the mm -hmm. Atlanta Creek League come from so after a few years of working on finding the Flint and like discovering these lost and hidden and degraded headwaters of the Flint River you know you start seeing water everywhere. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And like, you become aware that Atlanta has lots of creeks and they're all in pretty bad shape. Um, I find creeks really magical. I'm the kind of kid who grew up playing in a creek and really had my first, you know, kind of positive experiences with nature and with swimming in a creek. And I still think even a urban creek that's full of pollution and trash just got an essential magic to it it feels really like yeah. private there's and bugs and in and animals and i was saying where we would funny enough growing up next to they built the house next to my house and it formed water pools from the construction and you know frogs get in oh, there yeah. and we're catching them and racing them and weird stuff but like instant yeah. instant it's, life anywhere yeah. you know we've been taught that we have to dump outstanding water because mm. it instantly starts to breed mosquitoes and that's a food chain anyways i through working on finding the flint i got really interested in like all of atlanta's creeks and i was like i'm putting all this energy into the flint river headwaters but the creek in my my watershed <laughs> is actually utoy creek oh and and isn't that a cool name yeah. and where does it begin and where does it flow and what neighborhoods does it connect so and also at the end anytime i'm talking about finding the flint um, different folks would ask me how do I get involved in my local creek? I, I got a creek in my neighborhood. I'm like, I bet you do. Atlanta's got hundreds and, of them. And they don't know the name of it. Right. Or, uh, yeah. We're, we're all, as a city, generally disconnected from these creeks. And that's happened over many, many years of development. So I was like, there's got to be a website where you could just like put in your address and it'll tell you your creek. And I could not find that. 
So I made it. You made it? Yes. <laughs> Work, working and with I've some awesome people. And I've seen the like t-shirts and you just gave me the sticker, but it's like you can claim your creek in the right. same way people are claiming neighborhoods, right? Yes. I, that, that's also part of it. Everybody's kind of like repping their yeah. neighborhood or, you know, their corner of Atlanta. And that's great. I love that. I'm from, you know, I'm from the South side. I got a lot of loyalty to my territory, but the creeks are really special to me because they have these cool names like U-Toy, Snapfinger, Doolittle Creek, Sugar Creek. Um, <laughs> the names are a poetry to me. I think they're just an awesome remnant of either the indigenous history or the settler history. And it's, there, there's some names that need to change. Yeah, they're yeah, probably yeah. <laughs> not so cool. But I love those names. Um, I love how creeks sort of connect neighborhoods. That otherwise, they cross um, neighborhood boundaries and city boundaries. County, they're not these like apolitical yeah, like yeah. connectors. They're not following the rules. They're not yes. like oh, Mosley Park ends here. We're Absolutely, stop. that's. Yeah. And, and they cross racial boundaries throughout the city and those upstream downstream kind of dynamics that we have are like, um, you know, the creek starts in Decatur, but it flows down to Gresham Park. Are you guys talking to each other? You're all the same uh, watershed. So I love watersheds. It's like these kind of like natural um, districts that should be working together. And then just for fun, I, I'm not a sports person. In fact, I don't understand sports at all. Same. I'm like this reluctant <laughs> soccer mom that's trying to care about sports. You're like, yay team, go sports. Go, don't get hurt. Um, but I thought, what if we pull the energy from like, you're rooting oh, for your team okay. and like created creek teams, um, you know, with, and, and that's where the idea for like the baseball jerseys. Okay. Um, Sarah Lawrence is the incredible graphic designer who developed all the different... Um, the font uh, yes, and yes, the section. script. So yeah. we have three divisions, South River, Flint River, and Chattahoochee River. And within the divisions are all the teams. That is so cool. What is this website? Cause I At AtlantaCreekLeague.com. Yeah. And you can go in there, type yes. in your address, and it will tell you what team you're on. Yes. I was like, I was pausing. Is it Atlanta Creek League? It's Atlanta Creek League.com. I thought about making a nonprofit, but I was like, this is going to slow me down. Let me just do this <laughs> silly idea while I've got it. And I was able to get some sponsors from American Rivers, um, Georgia River Network, Chattahoochee Now, some different nonprofits. Yeah. We're like, yeah, we, we would like to have a t shirt that says U Toy Creek. And we would like to have a, you know, something. For people to just like represent, whether through a t-shirt or a sticker or some silly swag. And you know Um, this. I mean, this is why I do what I do. It's like sometimes people just don't know. And and you're not going to care if you don't know. Thank and you're you. not going to get everybody, right? But you, but out of the 30 people, you just taught them that the creek behind their house is called whatever. You yeah. know, it's like you're going to get two that are like signing up to clean it every weekend or something, you know? And so exactly. that's the thing. It's like fi- you got to find that person who's just going to fall in love with it in, in that way you are. And lots of people already do care. And they're walking their dogs by these creeks and every day and they're noticing litter and pollution or they're experiencing flooding. Oh. And... And I, I just wanted to create some connections because there's so many different nonprofit organizations that are doing environmental restoration work. And I just thought maybe I could help mat- play matchmaker and bring people together um, who, you know, otherwise would just drive past the creek and be like, I wonder whose problem that is. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. well, Why is there a mattress in it or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all notice these things, but it's hard to get involved. It's like... Um, if you can't even like figure out the uh, name yes. of it, no, so I'm we start you. with like kind of branding the creeks. Uh, honestly, that's what yeah. it's doing. It gets people behind yeah. it, like you said. It gets a sense of ownership. Mm-hmm. Like this is my creek; it should be clean or mm-hmm. or whatever. I love that. that well. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I just wanted to start it and yeah. see what happens. The artwork in, is there for if you're ho- if you're having a creek cleanup. 
I'll make you some shirts, that kind of thing. That's so great. You just start now. We'll have to figure out how to like take the sports analogy. Like, do they start playing each other? They can cleanups. Yeah, you you can actually on the website. If you get involved on any activity that is stewarding or having fun with your creek, you can score points. Oh, that's awesome! So we do have a leaderboard, and you can see what creeks are leading. I think Entrenchment Creek and maybe uh, South River Headwaters are in the lead. That's awesome. I mean, I dream of a day we have like a big field day. We play water games and do sports stuff. But honestly, it's just like it's for fun it's to get people connected and and have the creeks shouldn't always be something um that we feel shame about or you know we should we should get excited and feel joy when we think about our water because atlanta acts like we don't have water i know like we don't have a waterfront like it is everywhere it is everywhere especially when it rains hard and it's yeah it's just not the way you think of it in a chicago or whatever it's it's hidden mm-hmm. it's underneath a lot of things it's We've embedded it in the landscape yeah. it's everywhere and wow. you know it's going to make itself known it's going to be revealed every time it rains so how what takes you from these natural waterways to something like a pool so i've, I've been thinking about all these things at the same time um as i was working on finding the flint my kids were reaching an age where they needed to learn how to swim they really like, have two sons they're now 10 and 12 but around the time they were four and six they were Kids are just drawn to water. Yeah, I think oh, we yeah. all are actually, and we don't realize it. But kids, you see it. If you if they are near a puddle, they're gonna get in it. Don't I've stopped trying to keep them out of it. And so I, when they're like four and six years old, and it was like a constant. They're in the water. They're if we go and, and for my work, I'm taking them to find the flint. I'm taking them under bridges, and they are in the water. So it becomes this urgent mom. Um, kind of assignment. I have to I have to get them swim lessons. I have to find a place for them to swim on a regular basis so that they can apply those lessons and then actually learn to swim and then they won't drown. Um, we hope. Um, so I started researching swimming pools in my area and it had already come to my attention that the city of East Point, where I live, has no public swimming pools and it hasn't since the 80s. And that's like a whole story that I wanted to get to the bottom of. Um, the results of that research is now in ghost pools. Yeah, wow. Um, but then at the same time, I was just kind of researching swimming in America and how public swimming pools came to be, how they initially yes. came to be funded. Which I never, not going to lie, and I have a brain like that where I wonder about everything, but until I went to the exhibit and I started reading the timeline, I was like, oh yeah, what made us all say, like, let's gather together let's and swim. swim? So what is it? Particularly like, in cities where... Yeah. You know, if, if 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 you're a lake community or a coastal community, that's that's not a thing. But it, in urban areas, constructed public baths were really the first. Um, what you know, what we might recognize as like a municipal pool, and these were in the big, crowded urban slums of like New York and oh. Philadelphia. And so this is for working class people yes. to clean not a luxury themselves. at all. Literally, this is your access to a bath. Really? Yes. And I learned. I mean, this was in response to different epidemics that were ripping yeah. through urban areas and i'm assuming probably the progressive era Absolutely. stuff where it's like you Absolutely. know you're you're not living the right kind of life let's help you yes. like yeah that's these were these were solutions for the urban poor the first public baths if you went way back into european history you would find like grand yes. public baths yes. but just looking at american history which is kind of where i've been focused i read this incredible book called contested waters a Social History of Swimming in America by Jeff Wiltsey, and that formed a lot of my understanding of swimming in America. And this book is not about the South. It's it's kind of really focused on um, 
northern urban cities, really from, like I just mentioned, uh, New York and Philadelphia to St. Louis, Pittsburgh. And that's really where the first big pools were built and where the first battles over swimming pool integration were happening as early as the early 40s. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was a surprise to me, too. I always think of, yeah, you know. Yeah, the 60s. I mean, yeah. yeah, you just lump it all into, or the late 50s. Mm-hmm. So in the 40s, the northern cities are having integration yes. battles. And some of this was, you know, during the Great Migration, um, a lot of African-American folks were making their home in Chicago and Pittsburgh and big centers of industry in the north and midwest. And they wanted to take part in yeah. the public facilities, naturally. And the North is like patting themselves on the back, like, we don't have Jim Crow here. Yeah. But that they did. They and, did. And that's where I could totally see where it's like, well, the laws aren't on the books because mm-hmm. we're the North, but we don't want you in our pool. Exactly. <laughs> you, you you nailed it. That's right. That There weren't any laws on the books, and that's why it was um, wow. so violently contested um, when black folks decided they should be able to swim in the pools. And the biggest riots were in St. Louis and Pittsburgh in the 40s. Really? And so, yeah, so 20 years before, we our swimming pools in the South became battlegrounds over integration. It had already played out. Um, and it, it was those fights in the 40s that led to um, a lot of litigation um, oh. and, you know, that led up to Brown versus Board of Education and the desegregation of all public facilities. So you start thinking about swimming pools. Uh, here's me. I'm a mom. I'm like, what's well, like a good place for my kids to swim? And then I fall down this rabbit hole of like, <laughs> swimming pools explain America. Swimming pools explain everything about the way we fund public space and defund it and who gets to benefit and who's you excluded. This, and like, earlier today, you said something. Um, that was so fascinating that I did not think about it, is the way we show up at a, at a public swimming pool is like in our underwear. Yes. You know, and you yes. said that. You were like, you know, it's a very, it's a very intimate interaction, which is why it was such a big deal. Absolutely. For, for different races to have that. Yeah. And if you, you're a researcher, so you'll appreciate this. If you just go into any newspaper archive and look up pictures of a swimming pool, you're going to get white ladies in swimsuits you're going to get a lot of the female body on display they're very erotic spaces this was a new thing in america that like oh i can go out in public in a tiny swimsuit and as as swimsuits got smaller and smaller um the toward the 60s you know the tension over who gets to see these women in their in their skivvies um gets more more intense um because we've also well you also mentioned this and i know you know it is the way we are talking about white women with black men involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, starts yeah. starts basically the 1906 race massacre in Atlanta, but it's mm-hmm. all tied in there, right? Sure. This like sexualization, and then mm-hmm. like you're saying, but it's also no autonomy for the woman in the bathing suit, right? It's like someone's looking at her, right? And it's it, yeah, it's so complicated. It's all about kind of protecting the white woman yes. from the male gaze, from the black male gaze, and a lot of this is in Jeff's book, Jeff Wiltsey's book, um, because even beyond the South, pools instantly became this new public space that was very erotically charged. Um, even in the twenties, oh. you know, in thirties, as the as the WPA was funding swimming pools across America, it was the first place where you would go hang out with your neighbors, wearing you know half naked, <laughs> yeah. and spend all day just hanging out, getting some sun, watching the kids, chatting with your neighbors. It's a it's a different ex- experience of public space, and um, part of sort of the social engineering of pools in the WPA era was to break down class barriers, to bring oh. together neighbors. Um, 
but not they weren't ready to bring together people across racial boundaries in the 40s that that had to be that that had to be litigated up to the supreme court and ultimately it was a fight all over the south so what's happening in down here let's say in the south with pools are we getting them later so are we having our public pools are later than the northeastern cities uh the Big cities got them first. The biggest of old, you know, northeastern okay. cities got them first. Um, City of Atlanta, though, built incredible public swimming pools and lakes at the turn of the century. Yeah, like Lake Abana and those places, like yeah. the Claramere Lake. Exactly. Even, yeah, because I, yeah. I remember researching it was like a beauty pageant, but the girl's like, every day I swim at Piedmont Park in yes. Claramere. And I'm like, oh gosh, okay. Like that's, but you're, okay, so that existed and in And they look like lakes. I mean, at the yeah. turn of the century, Atlanta was boasting its swimming facilities. It's like, Come to Atlanta. We're the swimmingest city in the South. And they, they were referring to, um, you just mentioned it, Lake Abana in Grant Park, uh, Lake Claremere in Piedmont Park, Washington Park Pool, which was developed specifically for the Negro community. Yeah, they had a lake there? Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying the word lake. You know, in Georgia, there's no natural yeah. lakes. These were little reservoirs, ponds. They were spring-fed pools. So oh. they had some constructed elements like to yeah. collect the water, yes. but not in a way we think of pool today. I, I think that it, we would not recognize it as a pool today because there were no chemicals. It wouldn't have that blue color at, at all. It would have been like not a white bottom, but a stone pool. It would have been naturally spring-fed. I'm trying to think, but there were several in Atlanta. There were all these, they're referred to by historians as the bathtub pools because really they filled them from the springs. People swam them for a few days and they drained them. And in fact, just last week, I got to experience this at a pool in Northwest Georgia, Cave Springs, Georgia. Yeah. They still have a spring fed pool that they fill up on Friday, swim in it all weekend and they drain it during the week and refill it. Are we having any kind of integration battles in those early times in Atlanta? No, we had strict Jim Crow segregation yes, okay. of the races. So there wasn't no trying. I mean, especially and then mm-hmm. if you're talking about Washington Park at that and point. As far as I know, that you know, people didn't even try to integrate Atlanta's pools until court ordered desegregation really? in the '60s. Your project is in East Point. What mm-hmm. made you do that? Was it was it the why don't I have a pool to take my kids to? That's the beginning of the research. And, and it is striking to me that there used to be two pools in East Point, a white pool and a black pool, and now there are zero. So we, we literally, different communities across the nation dealt with court order desegregation differently. City of East Point did eventually integrate their pools, but virtually defunded them. The city voters defeated a referendum to restore the pools and build a third, so they were demolished or or filled in by the 80s. So that's one part of the story. But what's happened since the 80s is that there's never been a major, I mean, there's still no swimming pools in East Point. Efforts to revive the pools over the years keep coming up and getting defeated by voters and residents in opposition. And the story is lost. So you could go to... Uh, Randall Street, where the Randall Street pool was, and you would see nothing. Yeah. You're saying people don't even know why there's no pool. We don't even know what we're missing. Mm. And that's that's part of my, you know, goal with the Ghost Pools Project is, like, to tell that story, but to represent the, that the pools were really... They were good for our community, yeah. not just kids oh, learning how to swim. People love talking about them. I mean, yeah. I've, just the few people I've met have these magical memories of mm-hmm. swimming at the pool in that time. Yeah. So which pool was built first? The white pool. 
the the white pool it's uh the spring avenue pool okay it's called spring avenue because there was a natural spring oh, there oh was so, it a spring fed pool yes. oh it was built in 1932 using funds from the wpa and it was a, one of those spring fed pools that really resembled a lake it's kind of free form it's shallow it goes deep naturally circulating natural spring water that they drained and refilled and that is just of its era that was um 1932 and that by the 50s you know, there's new technology. There's chlorine in widespread use. Yeah. So it was like modern pools don't look like that or work that way for a reason. So by the 50s, I mean, every 20 years or so, pools need major renovation. They're just, it's hard to contain water. We, yeah. we started by talking about like, good luck <laughs> trying to control water. So you're it's, saying trying to maintain this natural spring pool, it's well, not going to... Any pool, honestly. Any pool. Like every pool I've looked at, like they're, they're really hard to keep in good shape for decades. They're out in the elements. Yeah. So by the 50s, the city... With, built a new pool and um they built a smaller uh, like a miniature version in the black community and so the wait so the spring fed pool gets changed into a more traditional pool mm-hmm. in the 50s mm-hmm. and in the same year do they build the mm-hmm. black pool yep 1954 they opened the okay. randall street pool as they were opening the new and improved spring avenue pool okay and, and the it, randall street was the black mm-hmm. pool and it was it's a mini version of it. yes of course right yes yeah. I, I, with like the cheaper chlorine like it's just anything yeah that's atlanta's story it's like we're gonna do public housing for white people it's gonna be amazing and then uh-huh. we're gonna use the leftover materials to build yours you're right yep and it's, it's i think it's about a third of the size wow. The math is confusing to me, but I think it's about a third of the size. It it would have been the same materials because it's the same contractor, and I'm sure they got a volume discount. (laughs) Buy one, get one free. Um, But it was, you know, a third of the cost of the white pool. And um, it's funny, today we were speaking to some people who remembered swimming in the white pool. They didn't even know the Randall Street pool existed. Yes, which I thought was so fascinating. They've said to me, I never even noticed that it was segregated. And honestly, I've gone through most of my life that way, never noticing that things are segregated. Yeah. And it's really only been in the last 10 years or so, and of living in East Point, yeah. and where I'm suddenly like paying attention, like, why is this segregated? Especially with kids. They yeah. take you into these, suddenly I'm taken to every public pool in Atlanta, and I'm running a little census and being like, how, is, how does segregation persist? Why do these people look this way? I, that's why I try to tell people it's like just a couple of extra questions of like, why does this why does this look like this? And like you're saying, why are, why are only these people here? Mm-hmm. Or why do these people look like this? Or like, for me, it's like, who built this? You know? Like, sure. I, I think that design plays a part in it because there's a sense of like who feels welcome? Who is this designed for? I don't have all the answers to that, but I found myself asking those questions on every single pool we visited. My kids eventually learned to swim in City of Atlanta pools that are close by. But I I find swimming pools really a fascinating place to watch community dynamics, to see who's there, when they're there. Um, One story I'll tell you is that we went to a number of City of Atlanta pools where not only were we the only white people in the pool, we were the only patrons in the pool on a beautiful day. Oh, fully inside the pool. In the water. Nobody's there. And I finally had to ask a lifeguard, where is everybody? It's a beautiful day. And she said, oh, this is pay swim. They'll be here for free swim. Oh. So in some neighborhoods, you know, at 430, it's free. But we were there at noon or whatever. So, you know, pick your time. Wow. And that $4, they weren't going to pay the $4. They were going to wait for free swim. And wow. that's when all the kids would show up. So it was like still racially segregated, but it's a different set of rules. Yeah, we're just changing the words, but like you're Same saying, outcome. they're still segregated. Yep, yep. 
Yep. It's how we do zoning too, right? <laughs> it's like we took out the black and the white words. We just do it financially now or economic, you know, economic. It ends up shaking exactly. out. So exact, it felt exactly. like, what year is this? Exactly. Oh, that's wild. Wow. So I, in the book that I'm working on and through Ghost Polls, I think I'm just trying to like present some of this research to my community and say, none of this is over. Yes. You know, yeah. this history is still affecting our us now when it comes to access to water. And now, even like today with this national lifeguard shortage, who gets the lifeguards? This is limited yes. resource. Yes. Listen, we live across from a pool that's a very small, it's not a public pool, but well, anybody can join, but you have to pay. And I laugh because we have lifeguards, you yeah. know, and, and <laughs> someone someone is like, oh no, the pub, the pools are closed because lifeguards. And I was just like, oh, but it, it made me really go like, sure, we have plenty of lifeguards, yeah. you know, like. And, and my kids have learned to swim um, because I was able to find them lessons yeah. good good yeah good luck finding lessons good luck booking them paying for them getting to them it's like a leg- it's such a form of mom labor too of like just figuring all that out and i feel very oh privileged God. that where i was able to get make that happen before the pandemic yes i hope the people now the parents now um and then getting to water on a regular basis because i was like i'm paying all this money for lessons but they can't swim in a creek we don't have a pool in east point we don't grandparents don't have a backyard pool it's nice that people invite us to their house, but my kids are not going to learn to swim with one visit a yes, year. Yes. So that became a real sense of me of my privilege and like the ability to take them and run them all over the city yeah. in search of Try water. out different pools. Yes. What the story with the East Point pools, was there a moment where like they closed or, you, you know, like what, I guess what I mean mm-hmm. is because now we're in the 50s, they exist, they're mm-hmm. separate. What yeah. takes it to the 80s where they get filled in? The swimming pools opened in 54, completely segregated. This was their version of separate but equal. Yes, which is, which is I love that. Because like you said, after Brown was bored, right, everyone, I think in other parts of the country, like, yeah, and that's it, it was all whatever. And it's like, oh, no, we just built double of mm-hmm. or one for you, one for me. Mm-hmm. And then that lasted another decade or so. Yes. <laughs> And the pools were the center of the black community and the white community, respectively, for decades. People loved them. They were well-loved and maintained and programmed with fun stuff like uh, dive-in movies. They had oh, evening, so night cool. swimming with movies at the white pool. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I found in um, Atlanta Daily World a lot of cool articles about beauty pageants and swim yeah. diving competitions at the Randall Street Pool. So they were lively places. Um I know that by the 70s, they were in disrepair. Oh, I skipped the desegregation part. Yes. So So during 1964, I think, was the year that Atlanta integrated its pools. And there was some threats of violence in East Point, and so they closed the pools for the summer. There was um, just a tiny footnote in the city council meetings that there had been an explosive or an explosion at the Randall Street Pool. And um, I had I'd read also about some fights that happened at Spring Avenue Pool. So the city, just to keep the peace, closed the pools for the season. Now, that has big impacts. People don't come back. After they start to feel oh. threatened at the pools, you know, attendance declines. I, particularly white people were like, we, we have options. We're going to go to the new country club. We're going to build ourselves our own pool. Or we're just going to leave East Point completely. You know, Randall Street Pool is active um, all the way through the 80s but the thing is voters stopped funding the pools 1980 there was a bond referendum on the ballot for like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to repair both pools and build a third and it was defeated voters would not support that who can say why the voters did not support that but i think there was a sense that these pools 
were a lost cause. You know, uh, they were at this point pretty old, 30 years old, needed serious repairs. And even though they were well used up until the end, the voters who actually went out to vote looked at the numbers and said, we don't want to spend our money on this. And then so they filled them they in. They filled them in. The current site of the, both sites are still owned by the city. One is a parking lot. The Black Pool, Randall Street Pool, is a parking lot for the baseball complex in East Washington. And the Spring Avenue Pool, this is the weird twist. After a few years, the city's had to redevelop that site as the Historical Society Museum and, and I don't know, gardens or something. Yeah. So they moved. House moving was a big thing in the 80s. They picked up and moved a historic home that used to belong to a mayor, moved it from downtown, and they parked it on the site. And they built the Historical Society Museum and Gardens there. Irony, right? That yeah. like yeah. one history is being erased. One is a parking lot. Shocker. The black right, right, right. is a parking lot. And that's, no, that just became a scrap of land yeah. for the city. The best, highest in use they could come up with for that was a parking lot. It's a very well-used parking yeah. lot. But it's, it's not a welcoming, um, shady, yeah. which you know, we, prime which piece of real estate. Earlier today, so you know, you gave a talk there. And like you said, it was... It was nice. I mean, aside from being 92 degrees and super humid, there's shade. It's peaceful. There's grass. You know, there's like trees. Yes. Like it is, it is still has some semblance of like beauty and nature. You might want to hang out there. Yes. If if there was something going on, you wouldn't mind sitting there. But the, uh, the Randall Street Pool site, it's very hot. It's just asphalt. So, but I think it's interesting that before... I started asking about the swimming pools. Even in the East Point Historical Society, there wasn't much about the history of the site. They do have the big photo. There's a giant... I saw when we walked in of the pool, Mm -hmm. and that's it. They have the big photo of the pool, and it's like hand-colorized. And I believe that photo might be from like the opening of the 1954 pool. And in my research, I found that it used to hang in the office of the director of parks and recreation and then once it closed what do you do with the big picture it's just a bummer they sent it to the historical society just put it up on but the side the it's kind of grim when you see there's a tiny photo of the randall street pool underneath it in black and white it's like come on so tell us for those who have not seen ghost pools like what did you do as part of this project to, to highlight sure. it because I think it's hard to explain like if or well yeah. when you see it it makes sense yeah. but it's like because you, your goal is how do I tell this story in a parking lot mm-hmm. and in a grassy lawn yeah they're very different sites and so it was a challenge to figure that out but I wanted to show people where the pool used to be the location these are sites that don't have an address anymore and it's very confusing if you look at an old photo even now, I people today were like, now where was this? It's same. How is it? That I, structure, I yeah. was like, wait a second, where was this building? It's, tr- it's completely erased from the landscape, and that's part of the problem. So we wanted to show the location of the pools, the scale of them. I did have, you know, from the city council meeting minutes, I had the contractor's information oh. about the size of the pools. And then looking at Sanborn maps, historic aerials, um, tried to figure out overlaying with the modern satellite where the location of the pool is so we marked the corners of the pools the randall street pool which is the parking lot we painted a, a blue rectangle where the water used to be and at the spring avenue pool where it's a grassy field we marked the with pavers the edge of the pool and then we ran blue led rope lights around that edge oh. so at night that does light up on a timer and at both pools we installed a diving board um, it's not historically accurate or anything, but it's in the location where the diving board used to be. That's so cool. And then we put flagpoles at the corners of the pool. And I don't think those are historically accurate at all, but we needed some way. 
we and on the flagpoles we hung um, pennant flags like blue and white pennant flags which you see on pools all the time now but we needed a way to kind of show some visually above the ground like how big the pool is because like you said the one at spring avenue pool it extends like beyond the grounds of the historical society and into this little no man's yeah, land. Yeah, you can't even like, walk back there. So it's like if it wasn't for the flags, you, wouldn't you couldn't get a see. sense of how big it was. Yeah, and you're doing the the audio thing was so cool. So it's like mm-hmm. it's a QR code that plays like sounds from the pool, yes. which is like so cool. Oh wait, well part of that is like how do you get people to? We want to evoke people's memories of the pool while you're standing there. I want you to see how big it used to be. I want you to imagine it full of you know, kids and laughter and splashing and lifeguards. And we're trying to like evoke your own memories. And if you experience these points pools, that that's easily done. But most people, you know, they have their own swimming pool in their brain. So last summer, every time I visited a pool with the kids, I would just walk around the oh, pool. Oh, I wonder where Me. that came from. Our original <laughs> audio from many pools around Atlanta. Oh, yeah. That is far. so cool. I actually, like, I played it and I went, wait a second. Is this, like, historical audio? I had no idea where it's from last summer. <laughs> historical 19, uh, two, 2022. 2022 audio. You can, hear, so cool. you can hear my husband yelling at my kids. Um but this, like, I just collected voice memos everywhere we went. I'd walk around the pool because I wanted to hear, like, lifeguards whistling and splashing. Yeah. And you hear kids cussing. You hear moms yeah. yelling at their yeah. kids. Very, Stop running. Very That's raw. Stop running. <laughs> and then the artist Santiago Parama took all of my stuff and he made a mix. Created this little device. I called it an iPhonograph. Just picture an old school yeah, phonograph that, that, that you can like, put your amplifies phone in. it. Just a little bit. But that way you can walk away from it. You can set your phone down and walk away and close your eyes. Stand on the diving board and... Pretend like you smell chlorine. I love it. I can't. So I only saw this one pool, but I'm gonna see Randall Street after after you have we, to we see get both here. pools to get the whole story. Yeah, I, I do. It's it's tough to do. We did an event today at Spring Avenue Pool because it's shady and there's a bathroom. Um, but you you gotta go see both. Yeah, I do. So this book. Tell me about this, the book that is not coming out yet. It's, okay, it's, I'm so intrigued, but it's like just about. Well, if you like Flight Path, I think you'll yes. like it. It's it's sort of like half memoir, half cultural history yeah. of which swimming. is I think why I love it, right? Because it's like I'm reading. For me, like I tell people, I don't read um, fiction ever, you know, because it's almost like a waste. Because I'm like, no, I must be reading this book about history. <laughs> but then those books about history can be like really dry. <laughs> but that's why I Thank liked you. it because it's like you're saying, it is. It's an actual story with history in it, you know? So I'm getting the best of both worlds. I like reading that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. I love memoir for that reason. You kind of walk in someone else's shoes, and it's a real person, and they're talking about real events that matter to them. So that's the way I write. I want you to understand that I'm a real person and that I have a lot of flaws and I make mistakes and have weird assumptions about things, and hopefully you'll come with me on the journey and see me get discover new information and, like, Hopefully I change through the process of the book, but by the end I know stuff I didn't know at the beginning, and so do you. Um, but the, it's a kind of a chronicle of the year of trying to find a place for my kids to swim. And we go to creeks and rivers and lots and lots of public pools and a few weird private pools and hotel pools and segregated spaces, integrated spaces. And I'm asking all the same questions we've been talking about, about where did this come from? Who paid for this? Who is it for? How does it work? Come along with me on the journey and experience trying to find water so it's, is it coming out in the fall you said it's next fall next fall yeah oh. it's slow it's lsu press is um publishing it i've got to get my all my edits done by okay this okay. october and so it'll one be more next year. year so we'll just have to do another episode next let's year. do let's it next year it. yeah i hope that i'll be able to i mean I, all the research is coming you know that i've been doing on water for years it's coming up in these different ways in atlanta yeah. creek league or it's emerging in ghost pools it's coming out in this but 
um, it's it's kind of a lot of the same thinking and material just manifested in different yeah. ways. I'm I'm a writer primarily. I love research and yeah. interviewing and writing, but turns out that I, I'm turns have, out you're an artist also having fun <laughs> with 3D art. I have partnered with a lot of amazing artists to figure out how to tell that story in three dimensional space. Well, I'm gonna put because I think you do have an option that if people have memories from it, they can record or they mm-hmm. can share them. So I'll try to put that stuff in there um, where they can contact or whatever so if people and then i'll put on information for seeing it because it closes oh tell me because it runs memorial day to labor day which i think is great because you were saying it's pool season right yes i it was really important to me that this project ghost pools be open memorial day to labor day that is the traditional swimming pool season that's what most public pools follow um and that was difficult for Flux Projects to understand at first because that is not the season that you try to mount an art exhibition. It's like, hey, Atlantans, come outside in August. In August. <laughs> Until today, July, it's hot. It's hot. Um, I've been thrilled at the turnout that people are around and they're coming out to see it because you can't tell the story in quite the same way. And if you're out there looking at ghost pools and you're hot and sweaty, well, that that's part of the point. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which I, I think you said that today, too. It's like, imagine how much you'd wish there was a pool here because it's really hot and sticky out. So leave right. leave my exhibit ghost pools and go find your own pool and and never see it the same way again. And ask questions. <laughs> okay, well this is this was amazing. Thank you for doing this with me. And Absolutely my we'll, pleasure. You're fun to talk to. You know so much and you're you're bringing so much amazing stories and information to Atlanta. So there you have it, Hannah Palmer and Ghost Pools. I have links to all the projects we talked about in the episode. I highly encourage everyone to go see Ghost Pools before it ends on Labor Day. Thank you everyone for listening. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.